Well, you'll see on the outline before you the text, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It was in 1912 that George Bernard Shaw wrote a play called Pygmalion, a very successful play that became a movie in the late 1930, about 1938, and then became a stage musical by Lerner and Lowe called My Fair Lady in the 1950s, and then moved into, of course, a a famous movie to that heading um, in the 1960s. It's about the phonetics teacher, Dr Higgins, who believes that if you could just learn to speak correctly in England, then you could rise up the social ladder. So picks on a flower girl, Eliza Doolittle, and turns her into a lady by doing nothing more than teaching her how to speak and getting her dressed in the right kind of clothes and and a hundred other things as well, but theoretically just by being able to speak. The critical point in the play, in the movie, in uh, in the musical, Eliza complains about these men who are remodelling her, along the words, 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 words. That's all you do is talk. Why can't you show me love? For love is one of the topics that people speak a lot about, and it's easy to speak about it, but it really is an action that has to be done. It's not about words. Nobody's ever going to be opposed to love. It's like the old joke about the curate's sermon. Over dinner they ask the question, who preached? The answer is the curate. What did he preach on? Sin. What did he say about it? He was against it. Well, it's exactly the same on love. You know, what did he preach about? Love. What did he say? He was for it. I mean, no one is going to be against love. It's just a word. And as just a word... Well, it's pretty meaningless. 1967 was the first world global television concert long before the Live Aids. And John Lennon and Paul McCartney performed their new song written for it to give a motto for the world. All we need is love. Love, 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 love. I won't go on with the number of loves they've got there in that song and I'm certainly not going to sing it for you. There's nothing you can do that can't be done, nothing you can sing that can't be sung, nothing you can say but you can learn how to play the game, it's easy. All you need is love. That's nothing you can make that can't be made, no one can save that can't be saved, nothing you can do but you can learn how to be in time, it's easy, all you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love, love, love. All you need is love, 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 love. The words are relatively meaningless and profoundly stupid. Repetition is the one key idea that lies behind it. Love, 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 love is all you need. But what is love? How do you get it? How does it help you? When will you recognise it? Can it be bought? Is it learnt? I mean, what on earth are they talking about? Frankly, nothing. What would you do if you did not have love? There are thousands of questions you can put to the slogan, but of course they're never answered in the song because the few words in the song that are in grammatical, logical connection are profoundly stupid. 
no one can no one you can save that can't be saved nothing you can do but you can learn how to be in time the more you think about it the more you realize you've wasted your time thinking about it <laughs> of course john lennon the great advocate of love was murdered paul mccartney is going through one of the messiest public divorces right at the moment for the failure of love in his whatever relationship number it is. I mean, love like this is like the beauty pageants uh, where every bimbo contestant sees that their goal for life is to promote. Exactly. It's meaningless. It's stupid. It's like the politicians promise that there'll be no child in poverty. It's just one of those things that who's going to disagree but who's going to believe and what does it mean? And it's stupid. But there is a great difference between all this love talk and the reality of biblical love. For biblical love is not a vague feel-good concept. It's not a buzzword that can be used to say whatever a person wants to say. A word that can be applied like to the many loves of Paris Hilton and I love beetroot and I love aeroplane jelly. I mean, what do those things have in common, possibly? Well, I won't enter that, that might be defamatory. Biblical love has a very clear, defined meaning. It's the motivation that is expressed in generosity, especially mercy. Thus it is connected closely to the idea of grace or forgiveness. That is, love is giving yourself to the other person for their welfare. Irrespective of their merits, it's giving yourself to the other person for their welfare. It's that motivation that is expressed in generosity especially in the areas of mercy, forgiveness. It's closely allied to the idea of faithfulness and trustworthiness, for it will intentionally seek the other person's welfare and go on doing it reliably, trustworthily. It's not primarily an emotion, though as with all motivations, it will have an emotional content. If you're a very emotional person, you will feel it a lot. And if you're a very non-emotional person, you won't feel it a lot. Your feelings are just telling us something about your kind of emotional makeup. There's nothing wrong with your feelings. There's nothing right with your feelings. There's nothing wrong with your non-feelings. There's nothing right with your non-feelings. It just hasn't got much to do with it. It has to do with your motivation and actions that flow out of that motivation which will consequentially have some feeling elements to it. It's well documented in the Old Testament as being part of God's character. Come back to our first reading in Exodus 34. It's page 88 in our Bibles, Exodus 34. And you see there in verses 6, the Lord passed before him, Moses, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the meaning of his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Love is part of those words, merciful, gracious, faithful. It's all part of the concept and context of love. Forgiving, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That is, love doesn't ignore guilt. Love forgives guilt. See, our world deals with guilt by saying, well, of course, there is no such thing as guilt. Don't feel guilty. You haven't done the wrong thing. You've just done your thing. And and we tolerate you doing your thing and you tolerate me doing my thing. So we love you. You love me. That's not what the Bible's talking about. It's talking about saying you've done the wrong thing, but I forgive you. That's a very different thing, isn't it? See, our world believes in shamelessness because it hates hypocrisy. But hypocrisy is much better than shamelessness because the hypocrite at least acknowledges there is right and wrong. The shameless says there is no such thing as wrong. That's much more degenerate if you think about it. Now, I'm not for hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is bad too. We should live by sincerity and truth. But at least the hypocrite says there is a wrong and there is a right. Love is about right and wrong. And forgiveness and graciousness and mercy and kindness. And the Lord is himself, by his very name and nature, gracious and kind and forgiving and merciful even while he upholds justice and righteousness. And so throughout the Old Testament, they sing of God's love. Come across to the Psalms. Psalm 117 has always been one of my favourite psalms. You can learn it off by heart, the whole psalm, on the grounds that it is the shortest psalm in the Bible, the middle chapter in the Bible. And uh, if you're setting out to learn it off by heart, can I remind you to do 717, not 119? which happens to be the longest chapter in the Bible, won't do you any harm to learn it. If you've got a memory like mine, stick with 117. Praise the Lord. Let's all read it together. It's a wonderful psalm. You ready? We're all on board. It's page 614. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. See these two characteristics of the Lord? Love and faithfulness. They go hand in hand. An unfaithful lover is not a lover at all. There is no love in adultery. That is hate. You hate your own partner. You hate the person you're committing adultery with. You hate their partner. You hate their children. You hate their parents. There is no love in adultery. Not biblical love. Oh, there's passion, there's eroticism, oh, there's, there's the many loves of Elizabeth Taylor, but there's no biblical love in adultery. That's an impossibility. Because love goes together with faithfulness. Because love is concerned for the welfare of the other person. You're never concerned with the welfare of the other person when you're committing adultery with them. You actually are only concerned with your own satisfaction, excitement, arousal, interest, passion, all those kinds of things, and their passion, but not their welfare. Love has to do much more with 
mercy and kindness. Look on, Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Love goes on loving. It's not quick. It's consistent and constant. It goes on Another Beatles song was, will you still lead me? Will you still love me when I'm 64? They've passed 64 now. Two are dead. The other two are multiply divorced. The love the Bible talks of is the love that will go on to 64, 74, 84, 94, however many fours there are in your life because it is steadfast and ongoing, and it is rescuing. Look, come back a few pages to Psalm 107. Psalm 107. It's page 608. This is a long psalm on love. There's a little introduction in verses 1 to 3. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. So it's an invitation for all the people of God to praise God, give thanks to God for his goodness, in particular, his love, his enduring love. And those who have been redeemed, that is, purchased out of slavery, rescued out of trouble, those who have redeemed especially should say so. He then gives you a series of events, episodes, examples of the steadfast love of God. Let me read the first one of them to you, verse 4. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he lifts with good things. See, in desperate trouble, appeal to the Lord, and because the Lord's steadfast love, mercy, grace, kindness, generosity, he rescues them, he redeems them, and brings them into safety. Same thing again happens from verses 10 to 16. For some sat in darkness, in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labour and they fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. And then another episode is given to us. Verse 17, some were fools through their sinful ways because of their iniquities suffered affliction. And again, you see, verse 19, they cried to the Lord. And again, you will see in verse 21, up on the page 609, let them thank God for his steadfast love because he rescues them. 
Over and over in this psalm, you get to see what the love of the Lord is. It is that putting himself out for the other person's welfare, rescuing them, having mercy upon them, forgiving them, being kind to them, being gracious to them. That is the love of the Lord. But if that is the concept, the word, the Bible is more than just about a word, for in the Bible we see God's love in action. It's not just some kind of warm buzz glow word of sentimentality about God that makes us wonder why we're ever in suffering at all. Now, in the Bible, we see God's love demonstrated. Come to our second reading tonight, Romans chapter 5, page 1135, 1135. It's not too late to reach over and grab one of the pew Bibles. It's easier to follow the sermon if you've got it with you. Romans 5, and pick it up there in verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, words, 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 words can be so cheap. Anybody can say, I love you, especially when they want something from you. They can say, I love you. Makes you feel good, makes you feel like you want to give them something. They're saying it not for your welfare, but for their manipulation of you, for their own welfare. But greater love has no man than this, to lay down his life for his friend. Now there is love. To take the risk of your own life to rescue the other person. That is an action because that's what love is. It's certainly the motivation, but it's the motivation that acts. It's the attitude that acts. It's a giving, a generosity. Yet here is, in this passage, is something even greater than that love. For Jesus did not die for his friends. Jesus didn't even die for strangers. Because you can do that, can't you? You see someone in the surf, in trouble, you plunge in to rescue them. You don't know who they are, but in the process, giving your life, you drown. You can say, well, that was terrifically loving, and it was. That is a great example of love, even of a stranger. But Jesus doesn't even die for friends or for strangers. Jesus died for his enemies. Verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, rebels against God, hating God and rejecting God, ignoring God and having nothing to do with God in our lives, while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. He didn't die for us after we had repented and stopped sinning. He died for us while we were still in opposition to him. And now that is love indeed. To be punished for the enmity of your enemies. 
There is grace, there is generosity, there is giving yourself. This is how God demonstrates his love, shows his love, his gracious, generous mercy. And this is the love that is commanded of us. For biblical love is not just an emotion, it's something that can be commanded. You must love your neighbour as yourself. Uh, The world falls in love. Their kind of love is something that you just fall in. I was walking along the street one day and I fell in love. I didn't mean to. I just happened to be on the wrong side of the road, obviously, because I I, I fell. There was a a bump in the the footpath called an attractive young girl and I saw her and I was smitten by this experience. I, I fell. I didn't mean it. I didn't want it. It was an accident. Biblical love is something that can be commanded. Go and love your neighbour. Do it because you intend. It's an intention of the mind. It's a disposition of the life. Friends, it's reflected in our wedding services because our wedding services are built on Christian understanding in the Bible, which is why they're so terrific. And you don't see it in the Cahill Gibran readings out in the out in the park when people get married by a civil celebrant and talk kind of beetle poppycock nonsense kind of language which is all lovey-dovey but if you actually analyze it it means sweet bother all but if you if you come to a church wedding and listen to what is said i will love you for better for worse for richer for poorer in sickness and in health until death us do part And I will love you and no other than you until death do us part. That is, irrespective of the circumstances of life, whether we go through good times or bad, rich or poor, health or sick, irrespective of the circumstances of life, for the rest of my life until I'm put in the box, and exclusive of all other people, I am committing myself to love you. Now that is the basis upon which you can build a home. Accidentally falling in love is a basis upon which you cannot build a home because just as accidentally you fell into love, you can accidentally fall out of love or accidentally fall in love with somebody else and somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. You can keep accidentally falling but you can't commit yourself to anybody else when you've committed yourself to this person exclusively. It's a very different concept of love, isn't it? But it's a much more wonderful concept of love. It's a livable concept of love. It's a love upon which you can build your life. Well, now, if God so loved us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, We ought to love one another. That's that third reading that Danny just gave us in in 1 John. Turn across there, 1 John, page 1229. 1229. It's not John's Gospel. It's the first letter of John, 1229. And and you pick it up again there in verse 7. 1229, chapter 4. Right-hand column, verse 7, beloved. Let us love one another. For love is from God, 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. When you say whoever loves, we're talking about loving like this, laying down your life for your enemies, that kind of love. It's because you've been born of God that you would love like that. And you know God that you would love like that. I mean, everybody loves the person who loves them. That's not the kind of love we're talking about here. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Notice it doesn't say love is God. It says God is love. A very different thing, isn't it? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the the turning aside of anger through the sacrifice, to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Christmas is a pretty difficult time for many people. You know what makes Christmas so good and makes it so bad? It's because of the deification of family. See, having got rid of God, humans are now looking for an alternative. And there's all kinds of alternatives available to you. The ashes, that's an alternative. I'm not talking about yours, but the English, well, they're not English, they're Australian owned these days. Ashes, that's one alternative, God for people. The mighty dollar is another alternative, God for people. We have pop idols, we choose new ones every year because they are so transient, that's another kind of, the fame, that is another kind of idol that people will have another kind of God. One of the common gods of this age is the family. It's the highest value in Australian understanding. And so we expect and hope that all our meaning, our sense, our our enjoyment, our fulfilment, our satisfaction in life will happen in the family. There's nothing wrong with family life. Family life is given by God. It's a good thing. But family is not God. And when you make family God, family cannot stand the strain. And so when we go for Christmas, you see, having got rid of Jesus, replaced him with Santa Claus for a while, but we grow out of Santa Claus, don't we? And so having got rid of Jesus, having got rid of Santa Claus, what have we got? We've got family. And so whatever else we do at Christmas, we must get back together with the family. And when we get together with the family, isn't it awful? Isn't it dreadful? It doesn't work. People are miserable and unhappy. Many of us are so shattered in our families, we can't get back to them. And then some of us, we can get back to them, and we wish we hadn't got back to them. Because, have you met my family? Uh, So to speak, not mine personally, of course. But have you met them? And it's just awful. You see, when you live in a village, you learn to get on with everybody. Because if you don't get on with everybody, you're miserable. You just learn the give and take of village life. But when you live in a city, you learn to choose your friends. And you choose the people that you get on with, who've got the same interests, the same temperament or compatible temperament, who live close enough for you to be able to drop in, but far enough away that you can keep your privacy if you want to. You, You choose, you select out your group of friends because they suit you and fit you. But at Christmas, 
You have to spend time with a bunch of people who have been chosen for you, genetically, by God. And city people find it very hard to get together with this bunch of people once a year and face yet again how dreadful uncle so-and-so is and how awful auntie so I wish he wouldn't kiss me like that and and all those dreadful little children making those disgusting noises and 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 it just goes on and on of the complaints you can have about these people that I would never have chosen but because it's family I have to choose to spend a miserable day with them each year until we can have a funeral and get rid of one of them and gather together for that purpose. And that's a little bit more enjoyable and entertaining. Now here you see is love. Not loving the lovable, not loving the ones that love you, not loving so that you can get something from people, but loving people whom you don't know, you don't care for, nothing in common with you, loving them because God loves you. He loved you when you were his enemy, so you will love them, even if they are your enemy. Church life's hard sometimes, folks, because again, anybody is entitled to walk in this door and say, the Lord Jesus Christ has died for me and I want to be a member here. They can be old, they can be young, they can be from any ethnicity, they can be rich, they can be poor, they can be highly intelligent and good looking like me, or they can be like you. It doesn't matter what they are, they're welcome here, and if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Because the basis of our fellowship is the love even of the enemy in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's going to make it a little bit hard work every now and then, isn't it? Because there'll be people who, by nature, I wouldn't hang around with. But yet, their Lord is my Lord. And he loves them, and he loves me. And if he loved me when I was his enemy, surely I should love them they who are my brother or my sister. So we finally get to the text, John 3.16. And over the next few weeks in the summer preaching program that you have inside your your outline, uh, which can tell you about what's happening over the next few weeks, and of course is also hieroglyphically on the back of your outline here as well, over the next few weeks we're going to look at the five verbs that are there in John 3.16. Love, that's tonight, gave, believed, perish, have. You'll get those in the next five weeks. Tonight is God so loved. But notice what it is that God loved, the world. In John, the world is often in opposition to God, the enemy of God. Come to John's Gospel now, chapter 7, John chapter 7. I haven't got a page number written down this time, but 1076, 1076, John chapter 7, verse 7. John 7, 7, so the right-hand column on the left-hand page up towards the top. John chapter 7, 
Pick it up from verse 6. Jesus said to his brothers, My time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about its works, that its works are evil. The world hated Jesus because Jesus shone the light on the evil of the world. Come across to chapter 15. Chapter 15 in John's Gospel, this is chapter 15. And again you see it in verse 18, page 1087, 1087, chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, said Jesus to his disciples, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Or come back to the beginning of John's Gospel, chapter 1, John chapter 1 and verse 9. John chapter 1 and verse 9. The true light, it's uh, page 1068, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. It is God's world. He's made it. He made it, and he owns it. But the world doesn't know him, and when it sees him, it hates him. Even when he came into the world, it would have nothing to do with him, except crucify him. This is the world that God loved. God so loved the world. That's an extraordinary idea that he would love the world. I mean, when you and I read it, we think, of, well, of course there's a lot to love. Have you seen the beaches? Have you seen the mountains? Have you seen the rivers? Have you seen the fields? He's not talking about that. He's talking about us and the whole world order of sinful evil that would crucify him were he to turn up even today. This is the world that God loved and he loved it by sending his son into this world to die for the sin of this world. He didn't come to judge the world, to condemn the world, which is what we deserve, but to save the world. You see, John 3.16 is explained by John 3.17. Just turn over to page 1071 and see it there. Notice how verse 17 is explaining verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. The world deserves condemnation but God so loved the world that he sent his son to save it. He loved it so. Very interesting little word there. It means two different things really, but both of them are true. He loved it so much and he loved it in such a fashion. He so loved the world that he gave his son. How much did he love the world? In what way did he love the world? My mind always runs back to the Garden of Gethsemane when I think of that word so. Where the Son of God pleads with his Father, if there is any other way, take this cup from me. Let this hour pass by me. 
that I may not have to die. If there is any way, Father, all things are possible to you. Take this cup from me. The father heard his son pleading for his own life. His obedient son who said, not my will but your will be done. He heard his son pleading for his life like that. But God so loved the world, you, me, God so loved the world that he gave his son. That is how much he loved the world. That is how extraordinary. That is the way in which he loved us. Here was God's intentional motivation. Here is his gracious action. Here is his mercy and forgiveness and redemption. Here was the reality of his love while we were still sinners. So are you loved? Well, by the world we'll be loved, won't we? By our fair-weather friends who love us when everything's going well. The city tonight is full of love that won't be remembered tomorrow. We'll be loved by those who want something from you. You'll be loved by those who find you attractive. You'll be loved by those who approve of your lifestyle, of the things that you do, that they like doing. But will you be loved when the weather is not fair, when there is nothing that you can give to anybody anymore? When you're old and wrinkled and less than attractive. When your lifestyle is nothing much more than sitting in the old people's home, dribbling. Will you still be loved then? Here's the sticking point. This kind of love is completely different to the world's. Even though you can find it in the world's. Yesterday or this morning, I can't remember which, I read an article by Adele Horan in the Sydney Morning Herald. I hardly ever agree with articles by Adele Horan. There were parts of this that I agreed with and I thought I'd share with you. It was entitled, How to Ruin Your Marriage? And the answer is, Wed Your Boyfriend. Nicole Hutt Kidman's husband troubles got me thinking about women and the choices they make. Kidman is not the first smart woman to marry a gorgeous man with a bad boy reputation and an addiction problem. Later she says, it's because men, roughly speaking, fall into two categories, boyfriend material and husband material. Some men make memorable boyfriends, but as husbands, they're louses. Another little bit later she says, another another classic trait of the boyfriend you should not marry is self-obsession. His life and problems are more important than yours. His sea stormier, his angst greater, and his needs needier. She picks it up in the films and says, over the years, men 
who might be classified as husband material have got bad rap. So many cruelly juxtapose the sexy boyfriend type and the gormless husband, as if women only have the extremes of manhood available to them. But husband is no longer shorthand for a man snoring in front of telly. There are men who can curl your toes and make you laugh, even though they are not addicts, dangerous, self-obsessed or emotionally unavailable. Trouble is women can overlook the very men who could make them happy. She concludes, ruminating on Kidsman's marriage has led me to think the man who is less showy, less needy, less volatile, less handsome, can prove to be the real turn-on. He can bring you his love for you. Of course, you'll have to get him dancing lessons. She understands and doesn't understand the difference. The difference that God makes, which from her other writings I understand she doesn't understand at all. For she writes as an atheistic humanist usually. But which is more favourable? The love of this world which is full of excitement and danger, which is full of self-obsession, which is full of using each other, the love of this world, or even she can see, the love that is like God's, faithful, reliable, giving to you rather than taking from you. John 3.16 is about God's love. God loves you for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Not because you're good, moral, upright, religious, intelligent, good-looking, but just because God wants to. Because God is love and is loving. Terrific news. I don't have to achieve anything for God to love me. Because God does love me. Just the person I am. Knowing all about me. My grandmother had a plaque over her mantelpiece. The perfect friend's the one who knows the worst about you and loves you still the same. We used to go to Sunday school and then after Sunday school we'd go down to Grandma's for lunch. My brother and I would walk down there. At Sunday school we learnt a song which used that little plaque. I was all excited because I knew the plaque because I'd read it, you know. And, and so when they taught it to us in Sunday school I went home and to my Grandma's and told her exactly that her plaque was wrong. It only got the first verse. It missed the chorus. It missed the point. Because the chorus we sang was, the perfect friend's the one who knows the worst about you and loves you still the same. There's only one who loves like that. And Jesus is his name. His wonderful, wonderful name. I don't think my grandma was impressed. But I learned a very big lesson that I would like you to know too. The perfect friend is the one who knows the worst about you and loves you 
still the same. There's only one who loves like that. And Jesus is his name. His wonderful, wonderful name. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, for your love. That love is of your very nature and character. That your love is displayed in the ways in which you rule in this world, in gracious mercy and kindness. But especially, Father, we thank you for your love in redeeming us by the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your one and only Son that believing in him we would not perish but have eternal life. Thank you, Father, for this love so expensive, so costly to you that can give us such assurance and confidence and security that irrespective of the circumstances of life, we know that we are loved by you. We praise you for this generous love of yours, Father, and thank you with such gratitude for, of course, we cannot ever deserve to be loved like this, which is why we thank you and praise you, Father, for being so loving. Help us, Father. Help us to receive this love in such a way that we will now love others, especially each other. That we will not love as the world loves, but love as you love, putting ourselves out for each other's benefit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.